Digital brings you Launch Base. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The world of tech startups reimagined. Build and elevate your idea, product, and company as we take you behind the scenes with successful entrepreneurs, investors, and tech professionals. These mentors showed me a map of success. Learn from inspiring stories, business strategies, and marketing techniques that will take your business to the next level. Are you ready? And now your host, John Radford. Hey, and welcome to another episode of LaunchBase. This is a podcast all about tech startups and everything digital product. If you are a startup just starting out on your journey or a corporation looking to be more agile in your product development, this is the podcast for you. So on today's episode, we are delighted to have Lex Deek, founder of Basket, join us. Basket is an ad from anywhere shopping tool that makes it easy to create lists of desired items to save for later. Lex has an illustrious history in the startup world, having founded venture firm Q Ventures, as well as being involved in several startups himself. Lex, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. Excellent. It's a pleasure. Um, so Lex, tell us a little bit about yourself, your kind of your journey um, in the startup world, how you got where you are and how it all started out. Sure. How far back do you want me to go? I mean, as far back as you want to go, really. I mean, anything that you think will be kind of relevant to you know, the startup world, product development, and launching product. Cool. Okay. So I think it's probably useful to kind of pigeonhole myself a little bit. I feel like there's all different flavors of entrepreneur. Yeah. And and that's often defined by what the drivers are for wanting to create and build and enter what sometimes are a crazy journey. But I'm your kind of classic tuck shop entrepreneur, I suppose, having started at school really um right. not quite with a tuck shop but i remember buying and selling pages and that probably gives my age away a little bit but um pages uh-huh. and early mobile phones and b-grade electronics which i was buying from loot do you remember the, the- yeah i do remember it yeah it's yeah. my age as well that was my bible <laughs> different color every day it was I loved it, especially the sunday bumper edition um, <laughs> but that was my sort of source of, of buying things and selling them at school and that progressed yeah. through to hosting some events some kind of club events when uh, wow. I old school college, <laughs> at the time wasn't I've done exactly the same I did exactly really? the same we called it Elysium it was called uh, and, and, and the day before it was about to launch we got well, we did get shut down. We just weren't allowed to serve alcohol oh. because someone found out that miners were going to be coming. Yeah. It was just horrendous. But yeah. yeah, you live and learn. You do, yeah. Well, it's well, clearly in the DNA is. for both of us, the entrepreneur. Yeah, similar kind of thing. I mean, we, yeah, our night was called Ecstasy and we had another one called Vanilla Sunday, okay. which was uh, <laughs> Sunday at Buzz Bar in Leicester Square for those that... Um, oh, wow. I loved Buzz Bar. Yeah, it was... I mean, and we were young. We were, I mean, we were well under the age of, of being legally allowed to to drink, never mind host an event in a life premises. <laughs> but um, that didn't stop us, obviously. So, no. um, yeah, so that was kind of that bit. And I guess that's where I always felt this this need to, to want to try and build networks and mm-hmm. bring people together in some way, shape or form. And then trotted off and, and went to university in Manchester to study management, which isn't a subject I think you can meaningfully study, to be honest with you. I mean, I I learned Mm. a whole lot at university, but not a lot of it was by virtue of what I studied. Uh, And so I enjoyed myself there, got involved in property. I was working as an estate agent and I, I was, I guess, 
a victim of good timing. And I utilized, I think, four student accounts, interest-free overdraft, essentially, to finance the purchase of a couple of properties and, you know, red brick student properties. When I first, and that was in my first year of university, by the time I left, they had pretty much doubled in value. So that was was a a great bit of luck, I suppose. Um, I mean, the yield was great, so it was well-intended, but it gave me a starting pot of capital, um, after which I set up an import business, uh, going to China and importing antique reproduction furniture, and then an eBay shop, seen the film 40-Year-Old Virgin. And I love the idea of a kind of consignment selling shop where you'd sell on behalf of other people. So we opened a shop in Manchester and grew that and then exited to a GE Capital-backed company that was growing quite aggressively. So that was my first exit and it was a clean exit. So I was left to ponder the next chapter and I went off on a what was supposed to just be really a long weekend away to Marrakesh, which was a new addition to the kind of weekend break offering uh, as the king there had opened up uh, access to low-cost airlines and was wanting the tourist dollar. So went there, had a look around and kind of the classic mooch that you do on holiday when you look in estate agents' windows and you start to do some very crude maths and you think, hold on a minute, the Riyadh cost this, we're paying this to stay. And that led to me Mm -hmm. buying an old Riyadh and basically converting it to a boutique hotel and spending pretty much a year back and forth in Marrakesh doing that, which was a bit of a rush of blood to the head. And it was an amazing experience. And I I love the idea of, again, it was kind of being host, right? It was about, you know, bringing people together or providing a, a great place for people to enjoy themselves. And so that was the upside. The downside was doing business in North Africa at that time was was definitely a different world um, that, from one that I was used to anyway. Um, from, from what point of view? Well, uh, I always describe it as one level above a venture and that it was almost like a quest. You know, okay. going to buy property with very different property laws and having 23 separate owners on the deeds of property, uh, the property that we bought and having to get permission from each of those, even though one of them was living as a Berber in a cave in the Atlas Mountains. Right. You can imagine the kind of the kind of conversations that, that went. Yeah. On. So that was good fun. And around about that time, I set up a platform called Family Fridge, which was intended to be, this is kind of 11 years ago now, um, a, an antidote to Facebook. So it was essentially kind of Facebook for your family group, a private and close to a closed social network. And yeah. um, I went through uh, onto the Dragon's Den, a, a slightly different version. They only did one series, but it was Dragon's Den online. And I pitched asking for 20K for 20% of the business, wow. um, okay. mainly as a marketing exercise. But I, I thought one of the dragons that was that was there could have been my rocket ship. And anyway, I got offers from from both of the dragons and I accepted one. And it turned out to be a year of just being messed around, meetings being deferred. Someone was really just masquerading as an investor. I don't think that she had the funds to deploy. And she just wasted a lot of my time in back and forth and back and mm-hmm. forth and taking three weeks to respond to simple requests and since then, I have seen that she 
is is absolutely a bad operator, is quite possibly going to go to prison, has defrauded, has misappropriated public funds, has a an, a long, long list of people that she's left in her wake who have Goodness. filed various grievances. So it wasn't me, which was good to know. It was her. But yeah. it, ta- it taught me a whole lot about the importance of candor and the value of time. And especially as a as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you know, you're you're going to be impatient. If you're ambitious, you should be impatient. And you want answers. And, you know, like anything in life, a no is fine, as long as it's a quick no. I liken it to dating. You know, it's if it's not working in a relationship, you're better off calling it a day and both of you moving on rather than mm-hmm. this long protracted gray area it's no good for anybody and time is ultimately the most precious commodity that that any of us have right so i learned how not to conduct oneself a couple of uh, maybe a year or so of licking my wounds and and trying to figure out what to do next I, i guess i was captivated by the idea of taking my bad experience and turning it into a positive one and through a healthy sprinkling of serendipity i was introduced to the founder of quintessentially aaron simpson and Mm-hmm. quintessentially uh for those that don't know is a global concierge service it's a vast network of high net worths they have offices in about 60 countries and white label most of the concierge services for a lot of the brands that you would know of uh, like amex centurion for example yeah. so we sat down and we just we hit it off straight away and i i posed the the idea of building an investment network, an investment club, essentially, that, that kind of did things better than than how they were being done in the angel and yeah. super angel space. And long story short, that gave birth to Q Ventures, which you mentioned, which is now certainly up there as one of the leading angel networks, private investment networks in the UK and growing from month to month, really, doing doing really, really cool things at the moment. Absolutely. Helping a lot doing, of Doing great stuff. Yeah. I mean, those of those of you who listen to the podcast will have heard an earlier uh, earlier interview we did with Robert Walsh, who's the who's one of the current managing partner. Yeah, yeah, and Robert's doing a great job, and I think you know we are, you know, we do practice what we preach. There, we are candid, we do move quickly, and we do look for outstanding entrepreneurs. We do look to co-invest with the, the best in class, with brand VCs, and with real value-add investors. And now the network is is very strong and has real engagement with maybe 100 to 150 family offices and then a whole sprinkling of, of the kind of larger angels in the market as well. So really proud of what we've done there and and it feels good. But I stepped away from Q Ventures in an, an operational capacity a few years back to explore other entrepreneurial, I guess, Itches, should we call them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, one. I mean, there's a a lesson, I guess, in the venture that I really kind of got into. First of all, so I started. I was very aware of all the crowdfunding platforms that were springing up, notably Cedars and CrowdCube, when we were getting Q Ventures off the ground, yeah. and it sort of occurred to me that there was a need from an investor perspective to try and bring all of these things into one place. So again, it was kind of the network play and Q Ventures as well, network play. But as an investor, wouldn't it be cool if you could 
stay abreast of all of the deals that were being presented across all of the equity crowdfunding platforms and the P2P platforms, a kind of broader alternative investment space, let's call it. So yeah. I had an idea that a Tinder-style interface would be a really cool way of doing that. So we built a, a mobile app called Tender, T-E-N-D-R, uh, which did just that. You see what you did that. Yeah. We actually had to change the name. We got a cease and desist on that name. Uh, ah. So we were forced to change it, but that's another story. So we launched this app, used a Tinder-style interface, and it was really popular. On the day that we launched, um, or we got the TechCrunch coverage, I think our article was shared more than the new MacBook Pro article that was out on the same day. So we skyrocketed up to about 15,000 investors within a couple of months. It was clearly working. People liked the interface. Then we had to figure out how to turn it into a business, essentially. And what we set about doing was building really uh, our own proprietary affiliate network for the finance space. And this was difficult because it wasn't dealing with established players who, you know, if for example, a you know high street bank that offers a credit card is well used to paying affiliates a commission for driving traffic their way, and there are systems behind that 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 automate the the process and track the customer and make payments and all that kind of stuff. We were doing it with a lot of partners who were new to that and who were building proprietary technology themselves and were still trying to find product market fit in a lot of places. So. A lot of you know hard yards in building an affiliate network there, but we were successful. And then I I was really captivated by what I was seeing in the robo advice space. So you kind of nutmegs of the world, money farms, scalable capital, all these platforms that allowed retail investors more control over their investments. And mm-hmm. my observation was that that was the marketing message that you know they were offering retail investors what I've just described. But the reality was that most of the time you would come on and you would get access to a small basket of passive fund portfolios and you, you'd you have a nice graph and you could forecast where you might be in 20 or 30 years and you could adjust your risk ever so slightly. But they weren't doing that. They, they weren't doing anything that was particularly clever. They looked great and the marketing was good. So my feeling was that we should build the true robo-advice platform. So we set about building PIA, P-I-A, which was an acronym for Personal Investment Assistant. And PIA was intended to be this conversational chatbot that both educated retail investors and gave them access to a universe of investment product and huge amounts of control and insight. And I built a a world-class board for that business, including the former chief exec of Barclays Wealth, the CFO from Money Supermarket, the former COO from Coots. The, yeah, the list goes on. And it was amazing. And that helped. And we raised just under a million to build that. But unfortunately, we never managed to, to get that one to market. We found there was a lot of red tape. And why was that? Sorry? And why was that? What, 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 what went wrong? Well, it was a very complex product in a highly regulated space with incumbents that had very deep pockets that were uh, that were making losses with their offerings, to be quite frank. Mm-hmm. And 
So the build took a long time. And I mean, one of the bits of advice I would give founders is, you know, obviously, if you're building something complex, it will take time. But be conscious that the hype curve and the investor interest and the partner interest will dissipate over time if you struggle to get your product to market. And I think that happened with us. Then the regulatory piece became quite difficult to navigate because making recommendations to retail investors is uh, is a difficult business with, with lots of, of red tape wrapped around it, as it should be. And I needed to raise additional capital. And I struggled to do that because I couldn't demonstrate really the kind of aggressive momentum that, that we needed to. And it got yeah. to a point where I'd been let down. I was very nearly there with a handful of investors on more than one occasion. And for various reasons, people either pulled out or, you know, the equivalent of getting hit by the proverbial bus. It just, I, I wasn't able to complete. And it got to a point where we were having to let, let part of the team go and we were losing momentum. And I think, again, another lesson is, you know, when you feel that, if if you genuinely feel in your heart of hearts that something is not going to happen or that it's going to kill you if it does, you need to call it quite early. And and so we did that and, and wrapped that business up at the beginning of, of last year. Okay, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but there are lessons there and, that, and that, that's an important part of the journey, isn't it? And I, I just wanted to touch on something from that. And, and you mentioned that how, uh, it, obviously it's a complex piece of, piece of tech and everything and, and you know, it is what it is. But I think if you're, if you were to sort of talk to other founders who are bringing to market a piece of tech, I mean, what in your mind does an MVP look like now? And what should a founder be focusing on? I mean, is the MVP still relevant? Is that in, in your mind, is that something that people should still be focusing on? Or is it minimum awesome product, as some people like to call it? I mean, where do you sit on that one? Um, I think it differs according to whether it's a B2B or B2C offering, potentially. Mm-hmm. I think businesses can be a lot clearer on on what value they need from processes and where they need to find efficiencies. So I think with a business, as long as the core functionality delivers and either saves money, saves time, improves the process, I think they'll be more forgiving of certain parts of the UX, for instance, not shining and, and sparkling as as they might i think yeah. with consumers it's it's probably different i think we're all so discerning now we're you know we really we're bombarded with messages to to try something to buy something to download <laughs> something to subscribe to something we know very quickly if we want to or not after touching the product and so You know, from my perspective, I don't even like apps on my phone that don't have an attractive app icon because it jars me a little bit. I look at that screen so often to see something that's a bit jarring. It just, very (laughs) subtle, right? But it does, you know, a hundred of those feelings compound to make you think, you know what, it's not quite there. I'm going to uninstall this. So I don't really believe in the notion of an MVP. I do believe in rigorously structuring and, and prioritizing feature sets and having a you know having a serious conversation about potentially parking some things that are in the realm of very much would be a nice to have than delivered any value. But um no I think the notion of the MVP for B2C businesses is is dying to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. 
so we're, we're, we're more in the realms of minimum awesome product and then it's all about kind of prioritizing feature set and, and taking something great to market but that can be greater in six months time yeah i think that's it cool and, and, and speaking of taking products to market you're currently in the process of, of doing that yeah we are you know we're a few months away yet but we've been head down with an awesome team of engineers seven guys working on this back-end system for Basket, which will become the shopping companion to millions of, of shoppers. And I think, especially given the current situation with COVID, I think that has mm. at least fast-forwarded the e-commerce sector by five years and, and people's yeah, of it and willingness to, to buy online. And I think it's a great opportunity for us because... You know, people don't have the tools that, you know, to, the, the tools essentially need to catch up with the behavior that people are exhibiting. And, and what we're building at Basket will help people to organize and store all of their purchase intent. And all the, you know, all those moments that you have when you see something that you quite like, whether it's online, whether it's offline, whether it's in a magazine, any format, any source, we'll be able to almost seamlessly capture that purchase intent for our users. And then we overlay various tools that help them to buy better, whether that's voucher codes or price comparison or price drops. So yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. So if I'm looking at an ad on Instagram, which which I often do, they're very well targeted, their algorithm works. Um, yeah. I tend to screenshot it. What's what's basket gonna do for me? So with imagery, we'll be running essentially a, a recognition algorithm over the imagery, which will employ the uh, character recognition or applying the image, cross-referencing that against a vast, vast database of millions of images. And that will basically add that product to your basket. So rather than it being stuck in your camera roll, it will be on basket with an actionable link to purchase the product simple as that awesome awesome and so are you is this something that you are raising for or what's the what does the journey look like from that point of view well we're already fairly well backed we've got a, an awesome bunch of investors so no we're in a good spot now but we've got grand plans and quite aggressive international plans and there's dozens of features and additional bits that I would love to integrate as early as possible. So I'm always open to having conversations with with capital partners. I'm starting to have some of those for further down the line. I think one of the one bit of advice I would give anyone that's raising is start the process when you don't need to. There's nothing mm. like a founder that needs cash. It, you can smell it a mile off. Smell it. Yeah. Unfortunately yeah. you can. And you should always raise money when you don't need to. It allows you to have just more honest, free-flowing conversations. It allows you as a founder to, to feel out and to understand the motivations of your investors and how they behave and how they communicate and what they what value they might bring. So it's, yeah. you know, I think a long courting process is a little bit like the hiring mantra that you should hire slow and fire quick. It's, a, you know, it's the same thing. Take time to get to know your investors and understand who they are. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and because that takes me back to a point that you mentioned earlier about one of the the dragons. And a question I had for you is, you know, 
it sounds to me like there is, but it, it can be very tempting for some people. If someone offers them money, they're going to take it. But is there such a there is such a thing as a bad investor? Is that is that what you're saying? And what and, and what makes a good investor versus a bad investor? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it depends on your own personality type and and the nature of your business as to you know what a a good or a bad investor might be. But mm-hmm. I would say. I mean, I think I think honesty and transparency and speed are certainly really important things. Yeah. You know, there's that that kind of frequency of communication, and it doesn't need to be lengthy paragraphs of of written copy, but just if you say you're going to get back to somebody on a certain day, or you say you're going to do something, you're going to make an introduction, or you're going to give some thought to something that was discussed, then, you know, it's about moving forward really quickly. Like good companies and good founders will find capital. What will, you know, either set them set them apart from their competitors is largely going to be around speed and ability to execute. So for me, that's really important. It's often the case that you have this kind of light and breezy conversation about the value that an investor is going to add because they sit on the board mm-hmm. of XYZ company, they can introduce you to this massive potential partner or they've got experience in an aligned sector or even your sector. That can be great and it can be game-changing for the business, but it can also it, it can also be kind of the opposite because take the example of someone having experience in your sector. If you're really breaking new ground and innovating, then taking on an investor who's learned how to do it one way and tries to impress those lessons upon you when you're trying to do it a different way can be a frustration sure. for an entrepreneur. Uh, it, it depends, you know, how innovative you are and what you're doing. But um, yeah, you know, that that's a part of it. Ego. I mean, everyone... interesting. Sorry, John. I, I mean, that's. A, I, I really. I thought that was a really interesting point about you know investors sort of imposing their their views on it. It's kind of a I know best type scenario that you could end up with. Mm. Yeah, it's and it's you know it's important to take everybody's views on board. And I think as a as a founder, as an entrepreneur, a big part of what you need to do is assimilate huge volumes of of information from all sources, and then you know disseminate that and make decisions that are based you know in part upon that, but also upon your vision of the future and your vision of how things need to be done. I find the best yeah. entrepreneurs often they kind of skirt the line between humility and and ego and and confidence really elegantly so you know you know that they'll knock down doors to get what they want but they'll say thank you yeah. and um, make people feel good about it and i think you know that's that's an important part of it and it, and you need to be able to have that kind of relationship with your investors assuming they're active you know if they're passive investors and they've got very deep pockets and it's patient capital great that's you know that's that's one of my favourite flavours of investor. <laughs> yeah, does that happen happen often at the kind of at the angel and seed stage though? Um, you know what's interesting? It sometimes because there's a whole new generation of, of angels, and because tax incentives in the UK are so attractive, it's brought yeah. tens of thousands of people into you know quote unquote the the angel space. It's often the the smaller investors who will be more most demanding of your time, mm-hmm. because for them it, it matters a lot more as a percentage of their 
their wealth, their investments probably more meaningful, potentially. And they're not so used to the process of exposing themselves to risk. So you might get someone that's investing £10,000, for example, who's you know, back and forth with questions and questioning a you know, year four projection for the business that you've got and things like that, which is ultimately, you know, finger in the air stuff for most businesses. And if you take the other yeah. end of the spectrum, so I'm listening to the story of the WeWork collapse and well, rise and collapse at the moment. And there's the recent chapter I just listened to was about Massa, the uh, SoftBank founder, who right. basically made the decision to invest nearly $4 billion into WeWork on the back of a half an hour conversation with Adam Newman, the founder. And he really prides himself in having a long-term view, not worrying too much about the detail and just seeing, is this person and is this space attractive in the long term? And can I realize a return? And, you know, that was that was through the Vision Fund, which is a $100 billion venture capital fund. I mean, so... Yeah, it's a two extremes there, but somewhere in the middle is probably comfortable. That, that, that's really interesting. Um, so just bringing it back to, to where you guys are at, and uh, you mentioned the kind of the collapse, the rise, fall of, of WeWork. I, I mean, we're currently seeing a slight fall, well, not even a slight, a massive fall in kind of the high street, especially accelerated, like you say, with COVID. I mean, is in, in your mind, is the high street dead or... Is there still kind of a place for it? And, and where does that fit in in the kind of the digital ecosystem and, mm. and how retailers going to have to adapt to that? Yeah. Um, I'm really fond of the high street. I've, I've got kind of slightly nostalgic, rose-tinted view of, of high streets because I just, I think they're, they're wonderful community hubs. And, yeah. you know, from being a, a six-year-old going to get penny sweets at my local corner shop up to living in nice parts of London where you go and get some artisan coffee and some avocado or sourdough, it, you know, have, a, have a meeting there. It's kind of, it's an important thing for the community. Obviously, it is changing massively. I guess what will sustain any offerings that require you to actually be there. So beauty, certain types of, well, most food offerings, um, I guess, when you want to to eat in the establishment, potentially clothes that you might want to try on. But it, all that will persist on the high street, I'm sure, are places that where you actually have to consume on site. Yeah, I think we'll start to see a shift in you know, part of the high street going back to residential, potentially, or even co-working type spaces. I think there's an opportunity to turn a lot of these vacant units into a, not just a, a coffee shop, but a dedicated co-working space that takes account of things like the need for video calling and quiet and great internet and to to access it. I think you'll start to see some of that kind of stuff. I would agree, especially in the commuter belt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most people would like to get out the house for a bit, right? Um, Exactly. But they don't want to schlep into into town. So, yeah, I think there's an opportunity for that. I think businesses like Appear here and the kind of short-term let kind of pop-up let type thing. I think we should start to see more of that where businesses can try stuff and it can be part of a marketing mix that you you take on a, a shop on the high street for three months. So I think it will evolve. And for digital, I think, I mean, it will just strengthen the the 
wave, the the tectonic shift towards e-commerce, of course. And as a generation that's less savvy or less comfortable with e-commerce slowly dies out, then you know e-commerce, you know, it, well, the high street will will exist only really for the things that are absolutely essential to consume on site and potentially things like virtual showrooms and and you know other things like that but yeah I, it's it'll be sad to see the complete death of the high street but i don't think it's going to happen in the next couple of years. no i think it's just an evolution which is um which is presents opportunity as well yeah absolutely so, so Lexa, we're, we're running out of time it's, we could go on forever i think but uh, I, I just wanted to part with perhaps any kind of final advice, tips, lessons that you could pass on to kind of budding entrepreneurs? Yeah, where to start? Where to start? <laughs> um, hold on to the beautiful naivety for as long as you can. Because, it, you know, if you and I were sitting in a pub and we come up with an idea, we would see it from a very simple perspective and you know oh it's why aren't why isn't burger delivery better like it should be better like they should get their hotter and then we're like yeah i definitely want a hotter burger really simple thing Uh yeah who doesn't yeah exactly right so then we get a bit carried away and we're like oh we're going to register a domain because we've you know had a few drinks we think of a funky domain and then (laughs) we wake up in the morning and we're like oh my god that is not the greatest idea and you start thinking about it and you research it and then you spend a month kind of in the weeds and you're like, I know it's not a good idea for all these very technical reasons. And that's probably, as an example, not a great idea. But that over-analysis and that kind of going too deep and that procrastination can can kill innovation. Like that moment, I love it. I'm kind of addicted to that moment that you have when you come up with a new idea. You think you're the only one that's come up with that idea. You rush to secure a domain. So it's kind of, that's a that's like a milestone. It's a psychological milestone doing that. And I mean, the list of domains I've, I've got. Is- I've you got a few domains. I've got a few domains up my sleeve as well. Yeah, I mean, I occasionally have to go through and I have to kind of triage my, my domains <laughs> just because of the cost. Of it. But, you know, that the point is that hold on to the that feeling for as long as possible, that excitement. And like, don't, don't court too many people for an opinion at an early stage. Get something that's nicely formulated, like crystallize your vision and then share that with people. Otherwise, you'll end up with a, you know, a hundred people's opinion on how something should be and, and your execution will just be a blurry, muddy mess of all of those things. Like be clear, stick to it, stay in stealth for as long as you possibly can. Don't raise money unless you absolutely have to. And if you're going to raise money from friends and family and fools, as is often the case for the first round for for people, uh, then, you know, be very honest with them about the risks associated and set the expectations and and make sure that you can deal with the the emotional side of, of failing and reporting that loss to them. And if you're comfortable with all of that, then... If you do raise money, approach the right people. Don't go out to a Titan fund that only invests minimum five million when you're trying to raise a couple hundred grand, but you hope they might love it so much they'll make an exception and end up giving you five million at a crazy valuation. You will waste your time. You will waste their time. You will burn your credibility. So raise money from the right people at the right level and ask them for candor. Ask them for 
feedback, ask them to respond quickly and enjoy it. And, you know, like it's, it's the most wonderful thing in the world, I think, starting something. It's very creative, right? It's just rather than a canvas or a score sheet, entrepreneurs build these, you know, they translate a cerebral concept or construct into reality and they form teams of people and a brand and a, and a process. And it's the same thing, but it's hard and, and wonderful in equal measure. Well, that's that's amazing. I love the enjoy it bit. Uh, that that really that really resonates. Um, Lex, it's been fascinating having you on. Good luck with with basket. I'm sure it's going to be yeah, awesome. It's going to kind of revolutionise how we shop, and we'll hopefully have you back soon to talk about you know how things are going. Lovely. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's been really nice to talk. Excellent. Great. Thanks, Lex. Lex. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of LaunchBase, brought to you by Born Digital. Mission complete. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. For more info and to stay connected off the show, visit launchbase.fm.